This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Superstition of Divorce by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 6 The Story of the Vow. Charles Lamb, with his fine fantastic instinct for combinations that are also contrasts, has noted somewhere a contrast between St. Valentine and Valentine's. There seems a comic incongruity in such lively and frivolous flirtations, still depending upon the date and title of an ascetic and celibate bishop of the Dark Ages. The paradox lends itself to his treatment, and there is truth in his view of it. Perhaps it may seem even more of a paradox to say there is no paradox. In such cases unification appears more provocative than division, and it may seem idly contradictory to deny the contradiction. And yet in truth there is no contradiction. In the deepest sense there is a very real similarity which puts St. Valentine and his Valentines on one side, and most of the modern world on the other. I should hesitate to ask even a German professor to collect, collate, and study carefully all the Valentines in the world with the object of tracing a philosophical principle running through them. But if he did, I have no doubt about the philosophic principle he would find. However trivial, however imbecile, however vulgar or vapid or stereotyped the imagery of such things might be, it would always involve one idea, the same idea that makes lovers laboriously chip their initials on a tree or a rock in a sort of monogram of monogamy. It may be a cockney trick to tie one's love on a tree, though Orlando did it, and would now doubtless be arrested by the police for breaking the bylaws of the forest of Arden. I'm not here concerned especially to commend the habit of cutting one's own name and private address in large letters on the front of the Parthenon, across the face of the Sphinx, or in any other nook or corner where it may chance to arrest the sentimental interest of posterity. But like many other popular things of the sort that can be generally found in Shakespeare, there is a meaning in it that would probably be missed by a less popular poet like Shelley. There is a very permanent truth in the fact that two free persons deliberately tie themselves to a log of wood, and it is the idea of tying oneself to something that runs through all this old amorous allegory like a pattern of fetters. There is always the notion of hearts chained together, or skewed together, or in some manner secured. There is a security that can only be called captivity, that it frequently fails to secure itself, has nothing to do with the present point. The point is that every philosophy of sex must fail, which does not account for its ambition of fixity, as well as for its experience of failure. There is nothing to make Orlando commit himself on the sworn evidence of the nearest tree. He is not bound to be bound. He is under constraint, but nobody constrains him to be under constraint. In short, Orlando took a vow to marry, precisely as Valentine took a vow not to marry. Nor could any ascetic, without being a heretic, have asserted in the wildest reactions of asceticism that the vow of Orlando was not lawful as well as the vow of Valentine. 
but it is a notable fact that even when it was not lawful it was still a vow through all that medieval culture which has left us the legend of romance there ran this pattern of a chain which was felt as binding even where it ought not to bind the lawless loves of medieval legends all have their own law and especially their own loyalty as in the tales of tristram or lancelot in this sense we might say that medieval profligacy was more fixed than modern marriage i am not here discussing either modern or medieval ethics in the matter of what they did or ought to say of such things i am only noting as a historical fact the insistence of the medieval imagination even at its wildest upon one particular idea that idea is the idea of the vow it might be the vow which st valentine took it might be a lesser vow which he regarded as lawful it might be a wild vow which he regarded as quite lawless but the whole society which made such festivals and bequeathed to us such traditions was full of the idea of vows and we must recognize this notion even if we think it nonsensical as the note of the whole civilization and valentine and the valentine both express it for us even more if we feel them both as exaggerated or even as exaggerating opposites those extremes meet and they meet in the same place their trysting place is by the tree on which the lover hung his love letters and even if the lover hung himself on the tree instead of his literary compositions even that act had about it also an indefinable flavour of finality it is often said by the critics of christian origins that certain ritual feasts processions or dances are really of pagan origin they might as well say that our legs are of pagan origin nobody ever disputed that humanity was human before it was christian and no church manufactured the legs with which men walked or danced either in a pilgrimage or a ballet what can really be maintained so as to carry not a little conviction is this that where such a church has existed it has preserved not only the processions but the dances not only the cathedral but the carnival one of the chief claims of christian civilization is to have preserved things of pagan origin in short in the old religious countries men continue to dance while in the new scientific cities they are often content to drudge but when this saner view of history is realized there does remain something more mystical and difficult to define even heathen things are christian when they have been preserved by christianity chivalry is something recognizably different even from the virtus of virgil charity is something exceedingly different from the plain city of homer even our patriotism is something more subtle than the undivided lover of the city and the change is felt in the most permanent things such as the love of landscape or the love of a woman to define the differentiation in all these things will always be hopelessly difficult but i would here suggest one element in the change which is perhaps too much neglected which at any rate ought not to be neglected the nature of a vow i might express it by saying that pagan antiquity was the age of status that christian medievalism was the age of vows and that sceptical modernity has been the age of contracts or rather has tried to be and has failed the outstanding example of status was slavery 
Needless to say, slavery does not mean tyranny. Indeed, it need only be regarded relatively to other things to be regarded as charity. The idea of slavery is that large numbers of men are meant and made to do the heavy work of the world, and that others, while taking the margin of profits, must nevertheless support them while they do it. The point is not whether the work is excessive or moderate, or whether the condition is comfortable or uncomfortable. The point is that his work is chosen for the man, his status fixed for the man, and this status is forced on him by the law. As Mr. Balfour said about socialism, that is slavery, and nothing else is slavery. The slavery might well be, and often was, far more comfortable than the average free laborer, and certainly far more lazy than the average peasant. He was a slave because he had not reached his position by choice or promise or bargain, but merely by status. It is admitted that when Christianity had been for some time at work in the world, this ancient servile status began in some mysterious manner to disappear. I suggest here that one of the forms which the new spirit took was the importance of the vow. Feudalism, for instance, differed from slavery chiefly because feudalism was a vow. The vassal put his hands in those of his lord and vowed to be his man. But there was an accent on the noun's substantive as well as on the possessive pronoun. By swearing to be his man, he proved he was not his chattel. Nobody exacts a promise from a pickaxe, or expects a poker to swear everlasting friendship with the tongs. Nobody takes the word of a spade, and nobody ever took the word of a slave. It marks at least a special stage of transition, that the form of freedom was essential to the fact of service, and even of servitude. In this way, it is not a coincidence that the word homage actually means manhood. And if there was a vow, instead of status, even in the static parts of feudalism, it is needless to say that there was a wilder luxuriance of vows in the more adventurous part of it. The whole of what we call chivalry was one great vow. Vows of chivalry varied infinitely, from the most solid to the most fantastic, from a vow to give all the spoils of conquest to the poor, to a vow to refrain from shaving until the first glimpse of Jerusalem. As I have remarked, this rule of loyalty, even in the unruly exceptions which proved the rule, ran through all the romances and songs of the troubadours, and there were always vows even when they were very far from being marriage vows. The idea is as much present in what they called the gay science of love as in what they called the divine science of theology. The modern reader will smile at the mention of these things as sciences, and will turn to study of sociology, ethnology, and psychoanalysis, for if these are sciences, about which I would not divulge a doubt, at least nobody would insult them by calling them either gay or divine. I mean here to emphasize the presence, and not even to settle the proportion of this new notion in the Middle Ages. But the critic will be quite wrong if he thinks it enough to answer that all these things affected only a cultured class, not corresponding to the servile class of antiquity. When we come to workmen and small tradesmen, we find the same vague yet vivid presence of the spirit that can only be called the vow. In this sense there was a chivalry of trades, as well as a chivalry of orders of knighthood. Just as there was a heraldry of shop signs, 
as well as a heraldry of shields. Only it happens that in the enlightenment and liberation of the sixteenth century the heraldry of the rich was preserved, and the heraldry of the poor destroyed. And there is a sinister symbolism in the fact that almost the only emblem still hung above a shop is that of the three balls of Lombardy. Of all those democratic glories, nothing can now glitter in the sun except the sign of the golden usury that has devoured them all. The point here, however, is that the trade or craft had not only something like the crest, but something like the vow of knighthood. There was in the position of the guildsmen the same basic notion that belonged to knights and even to monks. It was the notion of the free choice of a fixed estate. We can realize the moral atmosphere if we compare the system of the Christian guilds not only with the status of the Greek and Roman slaves, but with such a scheme as that of the Indian castes. The Oriental caste has some of the qualities of the Occidental guild, especially the valuable quality of tradition and the accumulation of culture. Men might be proud of their castes as they were proud of their guilds, but they had never chosen their castes as they have chosen their guilds. They had never, within historic memory, even collectively created their castes as they collectively created their guilds. Like the slave system, the caste system was older than history. The heathens of modern Asia, as much as the heathens of ancient Europe, lived by the very spirit of status. Status in a trade has been accepted like status in a tribe, and that in a tribe of beasts and birds rather than men. The fisherman continued to be a fisherman, as the fish continued to be a fish and the hunter would no more turn into a cook than his dog would try its luck as a cat. Certainly his dog would not be found prostrated before the mysterious altar of Pasht, barking or whining, a wild, lonely, and individual vow that he at all costs would become a cat. Yet that was the vital revolt and innovation of vows, as compared with castes or slavery, as when a man vowed to be a monk, or the son of a cobbler, saluted the shrine of St. Joseph, the patron saint of carpenters. When he had entered the guild of the carpenters, he did indeed find himself responsible for a very real loyalty and discipline. But the whole social atmosphere surrounding his entrance was full of the sense of a separate and personal decision. There is one place where we can still find this sentiment, the sentiment of something at once free and final. We can feel it, if the service is properly understood, before and after the marriage vows at any ordinary wedding in any ordinary church. Such, in a very vague outline, has been the historical nature of vows, and the unique part they played in that medieval civilization out of which modern civilization rose or fell. We can now consider a little less cloudily than it is generally considered nowadays, whether we really think vows are good things, whether they ought to be broken, as would naturally follow, whether they ought to be made. But we can never judge it fairly, till we face, as I have tried to suggest, this main fact of history, that the personal pledge, feudal or civic or monastic, was the way in which the world did escape from the system of slavery in the past. For the modern breakdown of mere contract leaves it still doubtful if there be any other way of escaping it in the future. 
The idea, or at any rate the ideal, of the thing called a vow is fairly obvious. It is to combine the fixity that goes with finality with the self-respect that only goes with freedom. The man is a slave who is his own master, and a king who is his own ancestor. For all kinds of social purposes he has the calculable orbit of the man in the caste or the servile state, but the story of his own soul he is still pursuing, at great peril, his own adventure. As seen by his neighbors, he is as safe as if immured in a fortress, but as seen by himself he may be forever careering through the sky or crashing towards the earth in a flying ship. What is socially humdrum is produced by what is individually heroic, and a city is made not merely of citizens but knight-errants. It is needless to point out the part played by the monastery in civilizing Europe in its most barbaric interregnum, and even those who still denounce the monasteries will be found denouncing them for these two extreme and apparently opposite eccentricities. They are blamed for the rigid character of their collective routine, and also for the fantastic character of their individual fanaticism. For the purposes of this part of the argument, it would not matter if the marriage vow produced the most austere discomforts of the monastic vow. The point for the present is that it was sustained by a sense of free will, and the feeling that its evils were not accepted, but chosen. The same spirit ran through all the guilds, and popular arts, and spontaneous social systems of the whole civilization. It had all the discipline of an army, but it was an army of volunteers. The civilization of vows was broken up when Henry VIII broke his own vow of marriage, or rather it was broken up by a new cynicism in the ruling powers of Europe, of which that was the almost accidental expression in England. The monasteries that had been built by vows were destroyed. The guilds that had been regiments of volunteers were dispersed. The sacramental nature of marriage was denied, and many of the greatest intellects of the new movement, like Milton, already indulged in a very modern idealization of divorce. The progress of this sort of emancipation advanced step by step with the progress of that aristocratic ascendancy which has made the history of modern England, with all its sympathy with personal liberty, and all its utter lack of sympathy with popular life. Marriage not only became less of a sacrament, but less of a sanctity. It threatened to become not only a contract, but a contract that could not be kept. For this one question has retained a strange symbolic supremacy amid all the similar questions which seems to perpetuate the coincidence of the origin. It began with divorce for a king, and it is now ending in divorce for a whole kingdom. The modern era that followed can be called the era of contract but it can still more truly be called the era of leonine contract. The nobles of the new time first robbed the people, and then offered to bargain with them. It would not be an exaggeration to say that they first robbed the people, and then offered to cheat them. For their rents were competitive rents, their economics competitive economics, their ethics competitive ethics. They applied not only legality, but pettifogging. No more was heard of the customary rents of the medieval estates, just as no more was heard of the standard wages of the medieval guilds. The object of the whole process was to isolate the individual poor man in his dealings with the individual rich man, 
and then offer to buy and sell with him, though it must necessarily be himself that was bought and sold. In the matter of labor, that is, though a man was supposed to be in the position of a seller, he was more and more really in the position of a slave. Unless the tendency be reversed, he will probably become admittedly a slave. That is to say, the word slave will never be used, for it is always easy to find an inoffensive word. But he will be admittedly a man legally bound to a certain social service in return for economic security. In other words, the modern experiment of mere contract has broken down. Trusts, as well as trade unions, express the fact that it has broken down. Social reform, socialism, guild socialism, syndicalism, even organized philanthropy, are so many ways of saying that it has broken down. The substitute for it may be the old one of status, but it must be something having some of the stability of status. So far, history has found only one way of combining that sort of stability with any sort of liberty. In this sense, there is a meaning in the much misused phrase about the army of industry. But the army must be stiffened either by the discipline of conscripts or by the vows of volunteers. If we may extend the doubtful metaphor of an army of industry to cover the yet weaker phrase about captains of industry, there is no doubt about what those captains at present command. They work for a centralized discipline in every department. They erect a vast apparatus of supervision and inspection. They support all the modern restrictions touching drink and hygiene. They may be called the friends of temperance or even of happiness, but even their friends would not call them the friends of freedom. There is only one form of freedom which they tolerate, and that is the sort of sexual freedom which is covered by the legal fiction of divorce. If we ask why this liberty is alone left when so many liberties are lost, we shall find the answer in the summary of this chapter. They are trying to break the vow of the knight, as they broke the vow of the monk. They recognize the vow as the vital antithesis to servile status, the alternative and therefore the antagonist. Marriage makes a small state within the state, which resists all such regimentation. That bond breaks all other bonds, that law is found stronger than all later and lesser laws. They desire the democracy to be sexually fluid, because the making of small nuclei is like the making of small nations. Like small nations, they are a nuisance to the mind of imperial scope. In short, what they fear, in the most literal sense, is home rule. Men can always be blind to a thing, so long as it is big enough. It is so difficult to see the world in which we live, that I know that many will see all I have said here of slavery as nonsensical nightmare. But if my association of divorce with slavery seems only a far-fetched and theoretical paradox, I should have no difficulty in replacing it by a concrete and familiar picture. Let them merely remember the time when they read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and ask themselves whether the oldest and simplest of the charges against slavery has not always been the breaking up of families. End of chapter 6